The theme of our service is the Lord is our mighty deliverer. And that theme is drawn from the text in Exodus chapter 6, starting in verse 13, and we'll read through chapter 7 in verse 13. So let's think about that theme as we read this text before Jacob comes to preach. Exodus chapter 6 and verse 13. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. These are the heads of their father's houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanok, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben. The sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi according to their generations, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, the years of the life of Levi being 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shimei by their clans, the sons of Kohath, Amram, Izhar, Hebron, Uzziel, the years of the life of Kohath being 133 years. The sons of Merari, Malai, and Mushai, these are the clans of the Levites according to their generations. Amram took as his wife Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses, the years of the life of Amram being 137 years. The sons of Izhar, Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri, the sons of Uzziel, Mishael, Elzaphan, and Sithri. Aaron took as his wife Elishaba, the daughter of Amminadab, and the sister of Nashon, and she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. The sons of Korah, Aser, Elkanah, and Abiasaph, these are the clans of the Korahites. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phinehas. These are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites by their clans. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their host. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt, this Moses and this Aaron. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? Chapter 7. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, 
and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man, for each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Well, storylines in books and movies often develop as a struggle between two opposing forces, right? So Aragorn versus Sauron, Luke Skywalker versus Darth Vader, Harry Potter versus he of whose name should not be named, Ben-Hur versus Masala. If you go back and read some of the famous epics, you'll see that that struggle extends even to the gods themselves, right? warring with one another over control of the world. And I think the reason that those storylines resonate so much with us is that it's the storyline of the world, isn't it? From nearly the very beginning, there is this animosity, animosity between good and evil, between right and wrong. The ancient doctrine of religious dualism sees our cosmos as engaged in this epic battle between two equal forces, between yin and yang, struggling together. But is that what we see in the Bible? Is there an epic struggle between God and Satan? And if so, who's going to win? Well, we come this morning to our 10th study in the book of Exodus. So, Thus far, we've seen God's people, Israel, are enslaved by Pharaoh in the land of Egypt. This takes place around the 1400s B.C. And over the first five chapters of Exodus, we've seen God hear the cries of his people and respond by raising up a man named Moses to be their deliverer. Moses is reluctant at first, but finally agrees to go and take God's message to Pharaoh, this message to let God's people go. And last week we saw that Moses' first attempt to bring that message ended badly. Pharaoh wouldn't listen and actually made the condition of the enslaved Israelites even worse. And so we left last week with God reiterating his promise to save, but with Moses and the Israelites feeling hopeless and helpless, wondering if that could ever happen. This morning we pick up again in a passage that preps us for what's to come. So from chapter 7 through 12, we'll see God unleash judgment on Egypt in such a way as to reveal his character, his name. So remember in chapter 5, Pharaoh had asked that all-important question, who is the Lord? And over the next several chapters, he will get an answer. The Lord is Yahweh. I am who I am, the covenant-keeping God of Israel. But for now... We're left in chapter 6 with Moses and Aaron discouraged and disgruntled, asking God, what now? So with our time together this morning that Lee has just read for us the passage, let's see two things. Let's see first God's deliverers, God's deliverers, and second, God the deliverer. So first, God's deliverers. There in verse 13, God again gives Moses and Aaron a charge to go to Pharaoh and command him to release Israel out of Egypt. But then in verses 14 through 25, we see an abrupt shift in the genre. So the writer of Exodus, many 
take that to be Moses, stops his narrative of Moses and Aaron and Pharaoh and spends a bit of time showing their heritage and their descendants, the family tree of these two appointed deliverers. If you take a look at these verses, you'll see the genealogy is not comprehensive. It only covers three of Jacob's 12 sons, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. What's more, it seems like this genealogy skips some generations, as many genealogies do. This isn't 1400s BC ancestry.com. It's not a, meant to be a completely thorough family tree. No, it's here purposefully for a reason, and that is to show us who Moses and Aaron are, and specifically who Aaron is, because he's new. Who is he? As one scholar puts it, it's confirming Aaron as a worthy partner in the deliverance of Israel. So after a brief look at Reuben and Simeon, the list zeroes in on the descendants of Levi, right? He has three sons there in verse 16. And we see his line extending to names like Amram, Moses and Aaron, Eliezer, Phineas. If you've read parts of the Old Testament, you may recognize some of those names. Aaron becomes the first high priest of Israel. Eliezer then takes that mantle after his father, Phineas then becomes high priest later in Numbers. You can go back and read Numbers 25 later this afternoon. It's a crazy story of Phineas, who's becoming famous for vindicating the holiness of God by taking severe action when God's people sin. But the main purpose for this genealogy, as I said, is to show who Moses and especially Aaron are and that they're Israelites. They're in the line of Jacob. They are these appointed deliverers, and they are part of God's people. We see that emphasized over and over again in verse 26 and following. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the, is, to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh. This Moses, this Aaron. The point is belabored that Moses and Aaron, these Men entrusted with God's message of deliverance belong to his covenant people. And as we look back on their family tree, we see how perfectly God is working out his plan. Moses and Aaron are no mistake. God chooses them and he's going to work out his plan through them. And it's not because they're so amazing. Remember, back in chapter 4, we saw Moses is not particularly the most gifted guy. He argued with God about this call to go to Egypt. He said he wasn't fit for it. He couldn't speak well. And it still seems to be a major concern for him. Look at verses 10 through 12 of chapter 6 that we saw last week. Where he said, The people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. And that conversation is repeated again here in verse 30. I am of uncircumcised lips. That's a weird thing to say. I'm just going to say that. What does that mean? Well, I think fundamentally it refers back to his sense of inadequacy in his speaking abilities, right? We saw that in chapter 4. We saw how God was going to use Moses even in his weakness to accomplish his mighty plan. He was a shepherd whose mouth didn't work, but God would use him. But at this point, I think Moses' sense of his own weakness is growing even greater. 
when he uses this term uncircumcised lips, it shows that perhaps he's not just thinking about his inability, he's thinking about his unworthiness. I mean, he's come to Egypt, to his people, and they've believed, but now, after hardship, they've cut him off. They want nothing to do with him. He's only made their life harder. Get out of here, Moses. When he attempted to speak God's word to them in chapter 6, verse 9, they did not listen to him because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. And so one author thinks that Moses, and I, I tend to agree, seems to be in even greater doubt at this point. That author writes this, Whereas Moses was reluctant previously to be God's spokesperson because he lacked eloquence of speech, now in view of how the Israelites have dismissed him. He senses within himself a further barrier to communicating effectively God's message. Moses' words are not only weak, they're rejected. So we're, while we're not quite sure what Moses means by uncircumcised lips, I think it's safe to, to assume his doubt has continued and is even enhanced. At this point, what can he say? How will Pharaoh listen to, to him? And you see that genealogy, which Lee did a great job reading earlier for us. You can thank him for that afterwards. It's bookended by these statements of weakness. One other author suggests that this genealogy, and I think he's right, seems to create a break in the narrative of Exodus a break between the former failed efforts of Moses and Aaron and now what's to come, the supreme effort of God himself. This genealogy verifies Moses and Aaron as bona fide Israelites, but as we'll see, it's only God's power that enables them to be bona fide deliverers. And it's encouraging to see that Moses does respond to God's restating of his promise. So after hearing again from the Lord in chapter 7, verse 6, we read, Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. And again in, in verse 10, so Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. I love that. Moses and Aaron carry on, even in their doubt, in their anger against the Israelites, even against Yahweh, even in their weakness, God is working through them to communicate his command to Pharaoh, and they are obeying. I think, church family, we can be again reminded here that God uses weak vessels to spread his glorious gospel. When we gather here on Sunday mornings and then scatter to be salt and light during the week, we do so communicating a message that doesn't make much of us. And that's good, because we're not much. We communicate not depending on our skill or our intellect. We simply communicate what we've heard, what we've seen to be true in God's word. We rely on him. So there's no pressure to elaborate on or improve on the message. We have only to hear and then speak just as the Lord has commanded. To be humble communicators of this word of life. The success of this word is not dependent on our power, praise God, but on the power of the deliverer, God himself. 
You see throughout this passage over and over again those phrases, the Lord spoke, the Lord said. At the beginning of each of the ten plagues, which we'll begin to consider next week, we'll see that begin each plague. The Lord said. The crux of the matter here is not whether Moses and Aaron will be obeyed, but whether God will be obeyed. Tim Chester says, the issue is not whether Pharaoh will listen to Moses, but whether Pharaoh will listen to God. And so let's turn from looking at these deliverers sent by God to look at the deliverer himself, Yahweh. Look there in verse 1 of chapter 7. So in the face of Moses' fear and doubt, God says, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. And your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you. And your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. God is again so kind to restate his promise to save, like he did back last week in chapter 6, verses 2 through 8. And these statements cover a lot of the same ground, if you go back and read those verses. Uh, it's very similar, but there does seem to be different emphases in these two speeches by Yahweh. So in chapter 6, the Lord spoke about how he would deliver Israel. But here in chapter 7, although he does say that clearly, we see a little bit more of a focus on the condemnation of Pharaoh and the judgment on Egypt. In chapter 6, the Lord said that Israel would know him as the Lord, but here in chapter 7, he says, Egypt will definitely know that he's the Lord. And, and folks, this, this speech in, verse, in chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, is really our prologue to the ten plagues. They encapsulate what's going to go down in the next few chapters. So those of you who are students and writing term papers, you know that you're supposed to write good thesis statements, right? A good uh, paragraph, introductory paragraph that summarizes where you're going to go in your paper. Well, God does the same thing right here. This is God's thesis statement for the judgment that's about to come. It's a thumbnail sketch of what's going to be revealed about God, that he is the one and only God, that he is the Lord of all. But before we finish this passage, look at verses 8 through 13. Not only will this be a speech, God's going to give an object lesson to Pharaoh. We see Pharaoh asks for a sign. He will never do that again. We'll see in the coming weeks that he stops asking for signs. Instead, he starts asking for them to stop. But for now, he naively asks for a sign from Moses and Aaron to prove authority. To prove their authority and therefore the authority of Yahweh, this apparent God of Israel who he does not know. God preps Moses and Aaron as to what to do in verse 
9, and then the drama unfolds there in verse 10. Aaron cast down his staff before, the, before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. You may recall this is one of the signs that God gave Moses back in chapter 4, a staff turning into a snake and then grabbed by the tail and turned into a staff again. It's interesting to note, though, that the Hebrew word for serpent used here in chapter 7 is slightly different from the word used in chapter 4. And so some think, and this is just um, just uh, thinking about plausibility here, but I think it's cool. Some think that the, the word connotes a bigger serpent. Some uh, real scholars say this is even a crocodile, which might rephrase some of those... Uh, coloring sheets you colored as in Sunday school. But whether, whatever it is, it's, it's a large serpent. It's a snake. And Aaron throws down his staff in front of Pharaoh and it becomes a, a serpent. And so as you're thinking, you're reading this, what will happen now? What's, is this is Pharaoh seeing the power of Yahweh? Is he going to convert? Is he going to lay down his defense? Well, he's not without recourse. Because he's got his guys. He sends for his wise men and sorcerers, the magicians of Egypt. We saw those guys back in Genesis. Remember when Pharaoh had his dream and he called his magicians to come so he could know its interpretation? These were the wizards of Egypt. And they're called on here to counteract the message of Yahweh. And they're no slouches. They do indeed have considerate of considerable ability. There in verse 11, they try to make snakes out of their staffs and they succeed. It says, they also did the same by their secret arts for each man cast down his staff and they became serpents. So Moses and Aaron have been matched, it seems. They've created a serpent. Now Pharaoh's cronies have done the very same thing. What you got now, Moses? The church noticed the difference. The power used behind each of these signs couldn't be more different. So there's plenty of speculation about how these magicians created serpents. Some think it was by some form of hypnosis, where they could turn a real serpent into a snake and then cast it down, and it would be stunned back into action. So it could have been trickery or sleight of hand, but I don't know. I, I, after studying this, I think it's better to assume that they used spiritual powers. Their secret arts, the work of the occult. Moses and Aaron, though, their sign is performed by the power of Yahweh. And that's a totally different ballgame. And that becomes clear when we see what happens next in verse 12. So here are all these snakes wriggling on the ground, but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. It's a standoff between the deliverers sent by God and the magicians sent by Pharaoh. They're lined up. They're trying to outdo one another. Uh, yet as, as one commentator points out, this is not primarily between Moses and Pharaoh or between Moses and the Egyptian magicians or between Israel and Egypt. This is a heavenly combat between the God of the Hebrews and the deities of Egypt. The struggle is not merely between two nations or two leaders. This struggle is between God and the false gods opposed to him. Ultimately, Satan himself. 
In Egyptian culture, Pharaoh considered himself divine. He was the God of Egypt. He called the shots. His word stood. His command was obeyed. Now come these upstart Israelites claiming a power of a different, greater God. Greater than all the gods of Egypt. I'll bring my magicians out and show you who will win. But after Aaron's staff makes do with his staffs, in this serpent sign, we get a sneak peek of what's coming. And it's a real warning to Pharaoh. Does he really want to go through with this? Does he really want to match up with Yahweh? Oh, he's strong, for sure. His magicians do have power. But in the end, Yahweh will swallow Egypt up in judgment, just like Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs in judgment. God's plan is set, and that plan will not fail. So church, as we get ready to embark on the study of these plagues, consider who God is. This idea of religious dualism, of two equal and opposing forces struggling for power in the cosmos might be an attractive way to think about the world, but it's simply not true. There is a struggle between two opposing forces, but they're certainly not equal. The forces that oppose God, ultimately the forces of Satan himself, will over and over again attempt to dethrone him and lead his people astray, but they will not succeed. How can we know that? How can we know our God, our Yahweh, is stronger? Well, when did Satan try to exert his greatest power? When did he think he had it all squared away? At the cross, right? And throughout Scripture, Satan is hungering for this day when he'll get to the offspring of Eve, when he'll be able to destroy the very Son of God himself. And he does. He completes his plan. He tempts Jesus in the wilderness. He persecutes him throughout his life. And finally on the cross, he gets his heyday. We always wanted the Messiah, the Son of God, gasping out his last breaths. But it wasn't the end, was it? What felt like Satan's victory was actually his most crushing defeat. It was the pinnacle of his power, was the final blow to his kingdom. It was at the cross that Satan was crushed under the feet of the king. And now, as we sung earlier, Jesus reigns. He is the one on whose head is placed the crown of authority. And so we shall all hail the power of Jesus' name. He is the one to whom every knee will bow. Yes, there's a struggle. But victory is assured and it's actually never been in question. Perhaps you're here and you're not a Christian. And that's a joy for us. We're grateful that you would sit through a service with us, and we hope to get to know you. Maybe you believe in God. Maybe you don't. Maybe you believe in a devil of sorts. Maybe you don't. But what God has revealed in his word in Scripture is that he is very real, and so is Satan. And Satan greatly desires to oppose God. 
And apart from Christ, we're with Satan in that. In our sin, we call Satan captain. In our sin, we line ourselves up with him to oppose our God or the God of the universe. We rebel against God, desiring to live for ourselves and our kingdom, not his. And the penalty we see in Scripture for that rebellion is death. Spiritual separation from God forever in hell. But what Jesus did on the cross was not just die a beautiful martyr's death, but to suffer the judgment, the death, the penalty, and the spiritual separation of all who would turn to him. Jesus came to take the punishment of all who repent of their sins and trust in him alone. He didn't die for good people. He died for rebels. He died for sinners. And so, friend, your only hope this morning is to transfer your allegiance from the devil's opposition to the Lord's side. He will welcome you. He will adopt you into his family as his son and daughter. Confess your sin and come to him in all your brokenness. The cross is your only hope. And Christian, be reminded this morning that your God is greater than Satan. Be reminded that though there are forces duking it out for your soul, they are not equal forces. God will always get the victory, whether in salvation or in judgment. So I wonder what difference should that make in our lives brothers and sisters if that's true it seems like that should change the way we live how two simple takeaways for us this morning first serving a victorious king should lead us in victory over sin serving a victorious king should lead us in victory over sin We sang that earlier, right? He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. Not only does God do away with the penalty of sin, he does away with the power of sin. So Christian, you're no longer bound by sin. You're no longer enslaved by Satan to oppose God. Jesus has died to liberate you. Do you live in that freedom? In that victory? Is your struggle with anger or bitterness or whatever sin you find especially tempting this morning? Is that struggle for you one of self-pity? One where you constantly say, you know, I wish I could beat this. But it's got my number. I can't. When it comes to your battle with lust or worry, or fear? Are you the victim? Friend, if you are in Christ, you have victory. He has won the battle for you. I don't want to negate the fact, the true fact, that we all know that sin still tugs at our souls, that even this past week's sin looked a lot more beautiful to me than Jesus. But, the war's been won. And that affects the way we battle sin. Through the Holy Spirit, 
Those of us in Christ now have this very real victory over sin. So are you engaged in this battle? The battle which conclusion has been guaranteed. True Christians don't live long at peace with sin. Have you made peace with your sin? True Christians battle sin. And seek to kill it. Looking forward to the return of the king will put an end to sin forever. If you have questions or you find yourself ensnared in a struggle from which you see no deliverance, God is our mighty deliverer. Talk to someone in the church that you respect, that you trust. And let them speak those words of the gospel into your soul again and again. Jesus has died to liberate you, not to give you an excuse to sin. Second, serving a victorious king should make us bold. Serving a victorious king should make us bold. Church, our God is not caught up in a struggle of which we don't know the outcome. No, he is the eternal serpent swallower, the everlasting devil crusher, Pharaoh and his servants will soon discover that in the hard way. And as we study, we'll be reminded of God's incredible justice and holiness. But Christian, for us this morning, let's remember that this powerful God is no longer our enemy. He has redeemed us. He has given his own son to ransom us from slavery, and he's coming back. Please let it be this week. So what do we have to lose? As we proclaim his message of salvation, as we lay down our lives sacrificially for others, as we don't anticipate our best life now but yet to come. If this God is for us, who can be against us? In his great hymn, Mighty Fortress is Our God, Martin Luther showed this kind of boldness. I love this anthem of faith and boldness. And though this world, with devils filled, should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. For God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, and we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure For lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Let's live in that confidence and let's pray for that. Lord, we need this reminder this morning. There is a real struggle for power in our lives and in this world. But the outcome is secure. You will have the final victory because you have already crushed our enemies of death and sin and hell and Satan into the ground through the death and resurrection of your son. And so Lord, would you be merciful to us that in the meantime as we see sin to be so attractive, 
May you give us a passion for your holiness. As we see pride and arrogance to be so exhilarating, you would give us your humility. And as we see fear and doubt so encroaching upon us, you would give us boldness to speak of your truth until you return. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.